Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is out today. Uh, in her in her place, our old friend, a tech commentary contributor, fan favorite, Jim Meggs, James B. Meggs. Hi, thanks for joining us, Jim. Hi, John. And of course, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so I thought we'd uh, we'd uh, we'd uh, change change it up and uh, talk about something uh, slightly akimbo from the news, which is Elon Musk turned around and uh, assembled himself nine percent of Twitter, bought nine percent of the shares of Twitter, making him the uh, single largest shareholder uh, next to the uh, activist hedge fund. Uh, Elliott management. Um, and uh, this seems to me to be a very significant development in the PC uh, tech wars because Musk is some kind of a techno libertarian, uh, whether or not his fortune is based on having gamed and gotten a lot of government subsidies being beside the point philosophically he's a randian of some sort and he uh and he has been attacking twitter for several months uh on the grounds that it is or social media on the grounds that 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 there is um suppression of speech uh, going on and musk has now joined the board of twitter uh that happened yesterday and we could really be seeing um, a significant blowback in the form of people putting their money where their mouth is uh, on the efforts uh, to use private companies and their weird status uh, in American communications, meaning the social media companies, that's Facebook, which, you know, Instagram, TikTok, and, and Twitter uh, in particular, um, to um, to control and contain uh, political speech. Uh, we had this uh, very strange moment yesterday. Christine highlighted to us uh, articles yesterday about the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation, uh, which apparently has been buying real estate with its multi-billion dollar uh, holdings uh, where you know people like go to have a shower, a six million dollar house in L.A., and they go to uh, st- untoward stuff, uh, very densely reported, and not by like you know Breitbart, you know, by New York Magazine, um, and uh, and apparently Facebook censored uh, this story yesterday from New York Magazine about this Black Lives Matter, this weird spending by Black Lives Matter, which may run afoul of tax. Um, uh, exemption rules. Uh, and why? Because Black Lives Matter has some hold on Facebook. And, you know, basically, if you criticize Black Lives Matter, uh, you're not allowed to disseminate a story on Facebook about Black Lives Matter. So the rubber is really meeting the road. We can get to Trump and all of that. But um, uh, the simple fact of the matter is that uh, Musk, Musk is doing something with his position as the fourth or fifth richest person in the world uh, to change some of the material, it looks like, to change some of the material circumstances of the way that social media works. Jim, you're a, you're a longtime wa- Musk watcher. So 
Yeah, well, certainly, you know, when I was editor of Popular Mechanics, Musk was the closest thing to a Thomas Edison, you know, of our day and a fascinating person to interview and and um, and cover. And and I think you're right. I, he doesn't talk a lot about his politics, but he certainly when he does, you you can get this almost kind of traditional sense of of uh, belief in individual initiative and free speech. And at one event that we hosted, he went on a beautiful little riff about why America was the only country in which he could do what he did. Uh, you know, the classic kind of immigrant entrepreneur story about how, you know, he came to America because you have the freedom to build and create. And so he's also kind of a hothead. He likes to stir up trouble. He He's not a bit afraid of controversy, sometimes at risk to his own role, you know, his own uh, stewardship of his companies. And but he uh, but he likes to fight. And and I think, you know, he's been there on the sidelines criticizing social media and Twitter for a while. And he's got plenty of money. So he he assembled this this package and it'll be really interesting to see what he does with it. And it was also interesting to see how quickly, you know, initially he's he, in a filing, he described it as a passive investment. But within, I guess, 24 or 36 hours, he'd been appointed to the board. So that's certainly not a passive investment. So, you know, this is going to be really fun to watch. The social media companies, I think, are now in a, in a very interesting position because they have been attempting to sue for peace from the resistance, the resistance liberals for years now, um, whom who who frightened them. So after the after the preposterous idea was floated in 2016, 2017, that Facebook was responsible for Trump's election, uh, manipulated by Russia through Cambridge Analytica because stories about Hillary Clinton were, you know, being shared a lot. As though you know, you can therefore you can create the numerical advantage, uh, you know, in three states of you know eighty eight thousand votes that to put that put Donald Trump over the top. But this was so accepted that you know there was a mass movement among resistance liberals to get off Facebook. Facebook is evil now. Facebook is bad and terrible and evil. Um, well, the Facebook and, is bad and terrible and evil, and I'm not a resistance level. You should get off of it. <laughs> no, no, I, no. But I mean, I'm saying that that they having thrilled to Facebook in 2012 when it was brilliantly manipulated by the Obama reelection campaign, a whole book being written about this by Sasha Isenberg uh, about how about how the uh, Obama, Obama campaign hired all these people from Silicon Valley with experience in social media to game social media for Obama. And this was considered a great triumph and an incredible innovation. Of course, when, when, when a Democrat didn't win in 2016, obviously uh, evil depredations by the, um, uh, I don't know, supernaturally powerful Russians whose brilliance and strategy we can now see at work every day in Ukraine. Uh, uh, we, it just became axiomatic. And, and when Black Lives Matter, ha all of these things came together. And the idea was basically that social media was going to start being the kind of handmaiden of the speech suppressing, the suddenly speech suppressing liberal left. 
which is you know, our democracy is at stake. So we got to suppress speech a little bit. Trump shouldn't be allowed on social media because he lies. Um, and so he, he we have to get him off social media and we have to do this. We have to do that. We have to, you know, and then we have these story, you know, we're going to tag stories. And of course, the ultimate, which was the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story, in the New York Post in October of 2020. Um, and I just think it's interesting because they're suing for peace. They're not getting any peace from liberals. And now conservatives are really going after them on the on the Hunter Biden story. And now I think if you take Elon Musk as kind of a quiet conservative activist in this regard, um, uh, they screwed the pooch here. They, they brought the whirlwind upon themselves. Um, uh, and it, it, this is part of the interesting larger dynamic of the culture war, Abe, I think, that uh, they assumed that their entire, the entire enemy that they had to worry about or the, the what they had to worry about were their critics on the left. And they overplayed their hand or they overdid it. And now they've got their critics on the right who are coming after them by, by buying them up. Yeah, I mean... And let's not forget, um, Musk also, I think it was last year, moved Tesla headquarters to uh, to Texas from, from California, um, owing to less regulation, things of that nature. And, and he is, um, as we saw when he hosted Saturday Night Live and there was this um, backlash from, very strange backlash. It was just a sort of general boo um, uh, he is definitely a figure that is out of keeping out of, out of the, out of the sort of out of that culture, even out of the sort of liberate out of the um, internet utopian culture, you know? Um, I mean, he's, he's has massive dreams, but it seems to me, I don't know, you know, Jim knows about Musk uh, far more in depth than I do, but there's a sort of a kind of an individualism, um, that 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 he approaches projects with, I think, and uh, doesn't have that the kind of um, sort of uh, groupthink will solve everything kind of approach that you see out of uh, Silicon Valley, and that has actually served to warp um, so much of what John's talking about. Well, he's not technocratic in the way that Silicon Valley tends to be, <clears throat> or at least that's the culture they celebrate. Josh Barrow has a theory about this that I've subsequently adopted. I like it very much. And it's um, it dovetails with themes in my forthcoming book I'm going to be hammering uh, over the course of the next year. So get ready, listeners. Um, but his theory is that, I mean, this is a guy who's done more to popularize green technology than anybody in, in, um, in the private sector. And yet he's despised by people for whom this is an existential cause. Uh, and Barrow's theory, which I like, is that he's committed to uh, sort of this utopianism to a degree, but he does it in a way that's fun. He's not morose about it. He doesn't go on about how we have 12 years to live. He's not sacrificing anything by himself. He's not depriving himself of anything. He doesn't advocate privation. He's, um, he's enjoying himself in a way that's antithetical to the modern um, environmentalist movement in particular and progressivism generally. Progressivism generally is dour and pessimistic and uh, doesn't look forward to the future and certainly looks down upon anybody who's enjoying themselves or occupying themselves with frivolities that don't advance the progressive cause. 
And Elon Musk I, I, occupies himself with a lot of frivolities and seems to be enjoying himself quite a bit. I mean, that, I think that's absolutely true. I think also um, these people really don't like very rich people. They hate Bezos. They hate Musk. They don't really hate Bill Gates, but they but they they probably would and they will. And the more that comes out about his connection with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, but uh, there is this they have too much money. They have too much money. It's bad. They're bad people because they have too much money. Um, and so you combine that and dovetail that with, as you say, this kind of like refusal to be monk like and, you know, go into hiding or in, in Musk's case, I guess, unlike gates suing for peace by playing philanthropist like that's not his game he's trying to save the earth through innovation gates is trying to save the earth by spending trillions of dollars on top-down projects um some of which are incredibly valuable and i really don't want to diss them i mean you know an effort to end malarial mosquitoes is you know if it if it pays off the way it's starting to i mean this is will be one of the greatest things that was ever done on earth in the history of earth so i i don't want to i don't want to belittle it but it is a much different model like well but they Musk don't like is, that either that's the anon giardardis's working theory is that this sort of philanthropic giving is a, just a, a gimmick a ruse to amass power and fortune in, in a few small hands while well appearing to be doing good but generally are just engaged in self-serving projects right well i mean this is always the issue with um with philanthropy is you know uh, what what are the motives of the philanthropist and you ask yourself a hundred years after you know uh andrew carnegie and the robber barons or whoever built uh, the cultural institutions of the united states and city after city with private funds the Metropolitan Museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, the museum, you know, the Clark Art Institute. The in, New York Public Library. The New York, all that stuff. And at the time, people are like, oh, these Bulgarians, they're just trying to buy their way into respectability or whatever it was. And what happened is that what lived after them was Carnegie Hall. Like that's, if you're Andrew Carnegie, you've ended up with a, you know, with a monument to yourself that is a, that is a massive feature of the city uh, that you gifted to it. And, and, and your, your, your name lives on for that reason. This is a, a lot of that hostility to philanthropy is based in the progressive idea that everything should be done collectively and that, uh, and, and, and that uh, only government action uh, is, is, is a legitimate way to spread the wealth and which is what philanthropy does. It's a form of spreading the wealth when you when you make artwork available for everybody to see rather than keeping it in your house you know where you only you get to see it that's a form of spreading cultural wealth when you build cultural institutions you are spreading the cultural patrimony of your country and your society and uh, that is disrespect every generation that does it uh, finds itself disrespected by um sociological fashionable sociological opinion uh at the present day and a lot of it is snobbery i mean it's a weird kind of snobbery um but uh, uh and then a lot of it is also and there is one thing i will say which is you know the cravenness with which some people talk about uh philanthropists because they're seeking to get their you know largesse 
uh, Gates in particular, can be kind of sickening. But that's not Musk's game, right? Musk's game is I want to help the, I want, when I die, people are going to be living on the moon because of me. What's better than that? And right. I mean, that, you know. And when he dies, he claims he wants to do that on Mars. And he he, he often he often adds the coda, just not on impact. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's so. So these are two different models. Right. And the model, which is the model that is so disgusting to to Anand Gerardus or Robert Reich or something like that, is the model that uh, my messianic my I'm not going to take my money. And give it to the government. I'm going to take my money and figure out how how the hyperloop would work that could get you from downtown LA to the airport underground in ten minutes, or you know uh, whatever. I mean, some of it's obviously nonsense. He's also he's got a bipolar quality to him where he you know he obviously gets incredibly grandiose and and then he crashes and he's a he's not a, a he's not a stable figure in that sense. Um, but he is, and and as I say, like much of his fortune was built on uh, the ex- the exploitation of public subsidy. That said, uh, I notice when I go around New York now, and maybe this is true in other cities. So there's the Tesla. That is the electric car everybody knows is the Tesla, right? And obviously, all the other major car companies are making electric, some version of electric cars or hybrid cars following in his model but he's the one who's perfecting the battery technology he's the one who's figuring out how the chargers work all of that and i noticed that there are now these four or five companies that you have never heard of that are springing up with these showrooms the one that i can remember best is genesis it's an electric car company they they're opening up these ritzy showrooms in weird places like in the middle of malls on the on the second floor of a mall the genesis showroom you know that kind of thing company has like 10 billion dollars of investment uh and it has no cultural fingerprint whatsoever has anybody heard of this when you walk by the mall you're like what the hell is this a clothing store i'm not quite sure what it is what it isn't musk has managed to make the electric car a going concern in a way that ford hasn't that none of the uh, none of the major car companies has they're following in his wake and yeah that's the astonishing thing so he's done this this is the major element of the energy policy of the future that democrats and top down democrats uh, are 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 worshiping at the altar of and he made the market and they still hate him because he did it in the wrong way as you say Yes, there are a lot of subsidies for electric cars out there. Uh, they're mostly they're subsidies that help his customers <laughs> primarily, and so yes, you know his cars take advantage. You know, if you buy a Tesla, you you get what I think is a, a fairly uh, distorted incentive that tends to flow mostly to pretty affluent people. But uh, but Musk didn't create that environment in which he operates in. So you know he's not like somebody who builds a, a company solely to to soak up some form of a government largesse because he's you know he's selling a car that the owners really love and he pioneered a market by appealing to people's sense of luxury, their sense of wanting to stand out, drive something distinctive, and yes. You know, it has this environmental component. So, but he also 
is very unapologetically a capitalist who's who's making huge amounts of money and uh, and his shareholders are making huge amounts of money. That I think rubs the progressive left the wrong way, and and but I think it's kind of you know if we're gonna bring our carbon emissions down, if we're gonna solve some of these problems, self-interest has to be a, a big part of it. And when you look at the progressive answer to climate change, it's deprivation, it's having less energy. I mean, there's a segment that even argues for what they call degrowth. They're they're uncomfortable with modern life, with technology, with capitalism, and they see climate change as a great argument for for having doing away with a lot of that stuff. So here comes Musk. He's he's genuinely concerned about climate. I and mean, this is not some kind of act for him. And his solution is to sell a luxury car that that people really like and you can get rich doing it. So it's uh it's kind of a does not compute mode for a lot of people on the left. There's a reason why Gorbachev, who remains a committed communist, is now a celebrated environmental activist. <laughs> yeah, well, That's I mean, true. if you look, if you look at the that the leading voices, uh, you know, in on the political side in climate, a lot of them were socialists or or leaned in that direction before they were they they were worried about climate. You know, the Naomi Klein's, and you know, she mm -hmm. wrote this book. This changes everything. Basically, look. Climate change is a great rationale for doing what we always wanted to do, which is get rid of capitalism. Right. Now, the interesting thing, you have a piece in the uh, April commentary. We're going to talk about your upcoming piece in the May commentary in a bit. But you have a piece on the um, on the fascinating uh, recent history of Germany and its relation to its own uh, energy policy and energy standards. So uh, Germany made a decision 10 years ago uh, uh, after the Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster uh, in Japan, that was going to basically deaccession uh, its nuclear power plants, and uh, in an effort to replace whatever it was that they were going to get, guess what they decided to do? They decided to partner with Russia on building a giant pipeline um, that was the single most important geopolitical, foreign policy, and economic policy objective of. Putin's Russia was the construction maintenance of this pipeline, which would create an entirely new geopolitical future for Russia. And here we are. Uh, they made a sort of ideological commitment to uh, because of the um, archaic idea that nuclear power is uniquely dangerous uh, to go with fossil fuels through uh, supplied to them by an increasingly authoritarian regime uh, that was already showing it had territorial designs on its neighbor. And it was like the invasion in February had this epical effect on German public opinion. I mean, you have the president of Germany saying, I was wrong about Nord Stream. I've spent 10 years. My main issue, my main political issue was the advancement of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I was wrong. It's like Chamberlain saying, I guess I got it, <laughs> guess I got it wrong after September 1st, 1939. You know, you have the new chancellor of Germany, uh, you know, saying, 
you know, saying, no, we're, we're, we're not taking our, our nuclear power plants offline. Anyway, you, so that this plays, it has an interesting side wrinkle. Yeah. So, and that decision to shut down their nuclear power plants was part of this broader energy policy they call uh, energy wenda, uh, which is our energy wenda, uh, which is their effort to go completely carbon free in their economy. I, I think their target is about 2050, uh, but primarily by decarbonizing their their electricity sector first. So they've built an enormous amount of wind and solar. They've spent um, hundreds of billions of euros on this project. And they have energy and, and I mean, solar and wind are producing, you know, a fair amount of their electricity when they're producing. But of course, the classic problem of the unpredictability and the wild swings in output remain for Germany. They get to be a bigger problem the more wind and solar you have. And then in 2011, after Fukushima, they decided to dramatically accelerate the shuttering of their nuclear plants uh, under Merkel. And, you know, I mean, in January, January 1st of this year, they shut down three of their last six plants. Everyone could see what was happening in Russia. Everyone knew this dependence on on Russian gas was a big problem. It was a big problem even before completing the, the Nordstrom 2, uh, Nordstream, I always call it Nordstrom, like the old department store, <laughs> <laughs> the Nordstream 2 pipeline. Even without the pipeline, they're getting... Uh, a huge amount of their natural gas from Russia. About half their gas, about half their coal come from from Russia. Well, why are they using so much gas and coal? Because A, their wind and solar can't even begin to fill their energy needs on a reliable basis. And B, almost all of their nuclear power is gone because they had a fair amount uh, back in 2011. So, you know, it, it was one disastrous decision after another. It's great to see some rethinking, but it's really, it's too little too late. Uh, just uh, briefly uh, on the on the Elon Musk point, um, Elon Musk put up a, a Twitter post last night. Um, his first post after joining the board and having this happen, and it is, it's a poll. Do you want an edit button? <laughs> um, and it says there are two choices, YSE or ON. So you can either pick yes, misspelled, or no, misspelled uh, <laughs> for your edit button. This is where so ultimately get that's very fun. That's fun. Yeah. He's a fun guy. But the edit button is a that's... terrible idea, and it demonstrates the extent to which this is a very self-destructive medium. Well, hold on. <clears throat> Why is the edit button a terrible idea? Because you can quote tweet something. And then Why is that, good? that can be edited retroactively to what? affect you and your, your what, whatever statement you made. So you can affix your imprimatur onto a statement that's subsequently edited and retroactively you're in trouble for something you didn't even say. Okay, so all you need to do is add a... Uh, a this has version feature. A, a version preservation um, feature like Wikipedia, so that you know you can you can, so that there's you can't stealth edit. Uh, yeah, but because you know the, the the desire if you do a thread and you make a stupid typo and then you can't go back and fix it. This this has been a huge annoyance for heavy Twitter users for years. But I, I agree. But not even that. I, I mean, I just wonder about it because. 
isn't part of what can frequently make Twitter a very destructive experience, the gotcha-ness of, of the culture. That's exactly and, it. But but no, but that's that's the oh you don't know how to spell. You're illiterate. Somebody or, writes a post that's like, oh, I love dogs, and you say, Yeah, I love I, I agree. And then two years later you come back and it turns out what you quote tweeted was Pol Pot had some good ideas. Yeah, okay. and then <laughs> no, I, but I, I don't want to talk about the substance. I don't really care about the substance. <laughs> it's like the 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 people who started Twitter are incredibly humorless. And they and, the, you know, pompous and Jack Dor Jack Dorsey uh, before his um, departure or whatever it was, you know, spoke about Twitter in this kind of messianic, humorless fashion. The way that the way that um, the way that Zuckerberg talks about uh, Facebook and Meta and everything like that. And like these are entertainment media. These guys are drags. And like, you know, <laughs> one of the things all Zuckerberg had to say is, what are you yelling at me for? I what I did was create a thing where you could find out what you know how your cousin's graduation went like you could see pictures of your cousin's graduation are you really going to complain at me about that it's not that it's like we're creating a new consciousness we're going to have a whole currency we're going to you know blah 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 and Twitter was like we're bringing a kind of discourse to do and Elon Musk is there going hey you want an edit button you know, uh, with a joke in it or, you know, uh, what do you guys want? What do you guys want with Twitter? You're the users. Tell me what you want. Has and anyone you, asked them what they want ever? Right. And, and you know what? It's, it highlights another difference. So, you know, Zuckerberg, the Twitter guys are so they have this messianism. But th through what are they going to achieve this um, sort of great, great change universe? They don't. It's just it's just a platform. They're not doing anything groundbreaking. Zuckerberg's great big idea was to go back to the 90s to with virtual reality like that's going to be, you know, and then you look at Musk. He's shooting rockets into space, failing sometimes. He's taking risks. He's moving actual material around, breaking new ground and all sorts of technologies. It's a very, very different approach. Look, ultimately, this is the interesting thing about the rage at the at the entrepreneurial billionaire. And we've written about this. Noah's written, Jim has written about this. Um, you've got Musk, Bezos, and Richard Branson. Uh, we had this incredible slowdown in the, you know, in sort of like in space innovation. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, three guys made billions of dollars. And it turned out they were sitting in their rooms in the 1970s watching Star Trek. And they want to go into space. And you know what they're not using their money for? But, you know, I mean, they have plenty of yachts. They have plenty of planes. They have plenty. But they're like, I want to go into space. And you know what? Mankind should go into space. And we took a terrible turn by putting all of the power about going into space in the hands of top-down government. Because it's, they don't have, they're not properly incentivized. Government's not properly incentivized to do this kind of, exploration we know this from centuries of exploration of, of of unknown frontiers of the sea of other continents and all of that so we're gonna do it and aside from people like us who praises them for this where where is wh wh this is the whole point about progressivism in in, in writ writ large small and in every possible way which is progressivism is supposed to be a utopian 
optimistic ambition about how the world is getting better and better and better. And if you just do what we want you to do and tell you to do, everything is just going to be better. The ultimate progressive was the original socialist Charles Fourier, whose idea was if you follow my plan, the ocean will turn to lemonade and then everybody can just drink out of the ocean. Like that, that was the 1830s in France. He was a lunatic, but ultimately that is what progressivism promises, right? Which is just a glorious, wonderful future. Suddenly, there are these guys who are committing billions of dollars for this very purpose. And they are prophets without honor in their own country among the very people who should be celebrating them. It's like people like me, I will say, who are like, we don't need space. You know, some of this then just sort of devalues earth and humanity. And it's all this like looking outside of, you know, outside of the miracle that is life on earth. There's a whole conservative line you can use about how we shouldn't even be doing this it's like building the tower of babel or something like that like we shouldn't be doing it um because it's uh it's it's hubris it's you know it's hubris and we're we're gonna we're gonna reap the whirlwind but uh that's that's one kind of idea but that is not the progressive idea which is just ah screw you and you're a rich guy and you're building your your ship looks like a penis and the hell with you you know <laughs> it's amazing it really, it really is astounding. If you think of the way that people like, you know, Thomas Edison, you know, was was a, for all of his, you know, sort of sometimes sketchy business practices and everything was regarded as a kind of an a icon of of our culture, the Wright brothers, you know, and uh, inventors, and the the resentment of the idea that somebody could get rich and then build something you know, so exciting and groundbreaking. It, it's it's really stunning. And I think one thing we that a lot of the public doesn't understand is how bad NASA has gotten at doing this thing that we always think they're so good at. I mean, that a column I wrote a few months ago, you know, how people always say, you know, like, well, if we can put a man on the moon, we ought to be able to spend a trillion dollars on, on daycare or something. Well, we can't put a man on the moon anymore. You know, we we did it back in the '60s with a very different, much much. Um, I want to say a leaner agency. NASA wasn't lean. I mean, it was incredibly expensive, but it had an ethos of getting stuff done and taking risks that evaporated over time as it became mired in in bureaucracy to the point where after they retired the space shuttle, it, it, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, there was there was no we didn't even have a way to get astronauts up to the space station we had to rely on 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 the russians to carry our astronauts back and forth to the space station and it was only because nasa had made this brilliant investment in working with spacex building their own rockets for profit that we were even able and still today have the capacity to fly our astronauts up to the space station and yet there's this notion that, wow, if only everything could run like NASA, you know, that's the way society ought to, we should ought to address every problem like it's a moonshot. And, well, and, Jim, and your, it, yeah. your invocation of Edison actually reminds me of the, and this is kind of a half-baked thought, but the extent to which, you know, this antipathy towards, uh, you know, Silicon Valley geniuses who actually do something and achieve something and not just build a platform that's enjoyable, you know, the, the counterexample is Theranos, it's the extent to which um, what was that? Liz Holmes was feted in popular culture by every 
major political figure, all of whom were just bamboozled by her, you know, li- li- you know top down, the biggest names in American government for the last 20 years were all all on board. And literally on her board, literally on her board, on her to, board to a yes. certain degree. Um, and, you know, that was obviously uh, a ruse, although came from the best intentions. But, you know, what is the distinction between Musk and uh, and Holmes, with the exception of their gender? He built stuff. She well, promised. Was, I mean, but nobody yes. knew that the Edison device didn't work. No, but that was the interesting thing is that Elizabeth Holmes had exogenous features that Elon Musk does not possess. Unless you want to celebrate the idea of the penniless immigrant who comes here from South Africa and comes from nothing and builds everything, which is not which is not a story we want to be telling anymore. But the 20-year-old genius girl who looks like Steve Jobs and dresses like Steve Jobs, who has a flash of insight in her Stanford dorm room, uh, that it never occurred to anybody before that you could take a drop of blood and then do your own diagnostics at home. Um, uh, she served a purpose. She fit the category. There was supposed to be a genius, female, attractive Steve Jobs. And right, once so identity she emerged, alone. identity alone, she, make, she got a billion dollar valuation on the basis of her identity, and as if you read John Carreyrou's book about Elizabeth Holmes, I haven't seen the show, but if you read his book, everybody in the world who knew about blood and knew about the features and, and qualities of blood said this can't work. Blood congeals; it doesn't. You can't do it from a drop. You have to do it instantaneously. And what's more, the comedy of this whole thing is: you're going to drop a blood, and then you're going to do a whole blood panel, like you get after you take a you know take a uh, they take a pint of your blood or whatever it is in the test tube when you're at the doctor for your checkup well why do you think they need all that blood when they take it from you you think they want to take that much blood they need it because blood is an unstable and uh, you you need a lot of it because stuff fails and everybody who knew about blood knew this which is why she had george schultz on her board and not a hematologist if, if her board had been made up of hematologists, the Edison thing would never have gotten off the ground because they would have said, you can't do this with a drop of blood. It only lasts 45 seconds before it, before it congeals. It's a fascinating story. So that's, that's, that's the interesting thing is Elon Musk is in the mold and model of, of old-time inventors, right? He's crazy. He's uh, unstable. Uh, you know, he goes too far. He plays fast and loose. He's insanely arrogant. He gets himself into trouble with the SEC for no good reason because he's a loudmouth. He smokes dope on the Joe Rogan show and gets himself into trouble with his stockholders. He's a loose cannon. But that those qualities are necessary to be this kind of, I think, a lot of those qualities are 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 are, are uh, inseparable from what makes him a person who says, why can't I build a hyperloop? Like you and I wouldn't say we can build a hyperloop. Like, eh, it'll never work. It's like he doesn't look at things and say uh, they'll never work. He looks at something and says, I can make this work because I can do anything. That's, you know, grandiosity, bipolar, whatever it is. But, you know, and he's a genius. So he's not just an idiot who is sitting there saying I can make the hyperloop work. He can kind of maybe make the hyperloop work. 
You know, unlike me, I couldn't, I could draw something on a piece of paper. I couldn't make the Hyperloop work, but he turns out maybe can make the Hyperloop work. And I mean, instead, at the very least, yeah. those, those qualities are welcome when it comes to something like uh, dealing with social media, um, because the reliable people can be reliably counted upon to sort of fall into line based on the political winds. And that, and that is precisely what's happened. I mean, I think Joe Rogan, you know, the fact that that uh, Elon Musk, you know, got into the worst professional trouble of his life going on the Joe Rogan show where he smoked dope. And then he talked he 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 seemed to be playing games with his stock and got into big trouble with the SEC from this one interview. But it's an interesting example of what of of where his head is at and where culture is going, because he wasn't, he's not interested in talking to the gatekeepers. He's not interested in sort of giving the carefully curated interview to the Wall Street Journal or going before Congress and doing the apology tour like Mark Zuckerberg having been briefed for three weeks. He wants to go where he wants to go and say what he wants to say. And he goes on un, unmediated media to do it. And for some reason, this is viewed as a terrible thing. It's like everything you would want if you were actually a Tesla stockholder, by which I mean, you've got this guy, you're investing money in his stock and he, he mouths off about what he wants to do with his company. That gives you more information than you would get from, you know, from his deck, which is designed to, you know, to maximize the propagandistic value of his story. Get him, have him talk to Joe Rogan for three hours. He wants to talk to Joe Rogan for three hours. We sit around thinking you're crazy to do that because you'll one sentence. It's like what Noah said about Twitter, one sentence, one word out of place and you can ruin your life. But he doesn't, he's after bigger game. And I think this game with Twitter is part of his bigger game. I mean, I don't think he's interested. This is not a Peter Thiel I'm doing this to shut Gawker down because Gawker did something terrible. I actually think that was a good, not a bad. I can go into why I think so, but we talked about this years ago and it's not, not necessary, but this is something else. This is like, you know, Twitter pisses me off uh, with, with its behavior. So I'm going to buy a lot of it and see if I can fix. Cause I, I can make a hyperloop. Maybe I can fix Twitter. You know, what's wrong with Twitter is that it's, it's, it's putting its finger on the scales politically and sociologically. Well, maybe I'm there to take the finger off the scales and see what happens. It's, I think it's a very interesting play. And we will talk a little more about that. But first, I do need to talk to you about our first advertiser of the day. The Grammys were on Sunday night, right? So a lot of people on the Grammys, if you're watching the Grammys and you might want to watch an alternate performance uh, concert being given by Taylor Swift in China that wasn't isn't readily available on say HBO Max or Netflix in the United States for complicated reasons you might want to consider ExpressVPN because one of the things that ExpressVPN allows you to do aside from protecting your data from hackers and all of that is to allow you to switch the or the country of origin from which you search on your device and you can therefore get access to netflix programming and programming all over the world 
that is denied you in the United States for bureaucratic or technical reasons having to do with rights. There's nothing illegal, immoral, or wrong about this. You're paying Netflix. You pay Netflix that money. You deserve to see what Netflix has to offer. Netflix would be happy to let you see it if it could, but it's got its own deals to do. So uh, without an, without a VPN like ExpressVPN, you only get access to a fraction of that content. So you go into ExpressVPN, you literally change your location. There's a window, you can change it to one of dozens of countries. And uh, you can then search. And I watched a, I watched a Korean TV show a couple months ago that wasn't readily available in the United States uh, by switching my by switching my country of origin to South Korea, for example. It's blazingly fast. <clears throat> you can use it on on every device. There are servers in 94 different countries. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use this link, expressvpn.com slash commentary, to get an extra free month of ExpressVPN for free. And Bolin Branch, Bolin Branch sheets, soft, 100% organic cotton threads. Best threads on earth, superior comfort, better night's sleep. And these sheets aren't just buttery, as Noah will tell you. They're breathable. They're impossibly soft. They get softer with every wash. Forget thread count. Bowling Branch gives you thread quality, okay? Highest quality threads on earth. Sheets made with threads so luxurious they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. Buttery to the touch, super breathable, perfect for every season. 10,000 stellar reviews. You'll immediately feel the difference in their iconic signature sheets that come in nine versatile colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at BowlingBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. So we're talking about tech and tech geniuses and tech uh, and, and the promise of tech in our future. And Jim, you've come along uh, as a commentary columnist to bring the crushing morosity to bear in the piece that we will have up probably the end of this week, early next week, about um, how, as we look and consider what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and what Russia might do as a counter assault against the West, we have to really start thinking seriously as, as, as people have been talking now for decades, really, but, uh, and Biden has been mentioning in his talks and speeches about Russia and Ukraine for months about the threat of cyber attacks on the United States from, from Russia. This is not a new problem. And in fact, it's a daily problem on a small scale for every business and, and uh, every agency in our, in our military. But as the Ukraine crisis has moved forward and as we worry more about what Putin will do when he feels cornered, maybe feels that his regime and even his life are threatened, the, the worries about nuclear war keep popping up. But and that's a genuine worry. But a much more likely and I think equally worrisome threat is some kind of cyber war that would succeed in not just hitting a particular industry, uh, but actually uh, 
kind of taking some major chunks of our infrastructure offline. If you could take down big parts of our power grid, disable a few natural gas pipelines, screw up major chunks of the internet, in combination, those things could be almost like a nuclear attack. You know, we've all been through blackouts at last a few days, but usually over pretty small regions. Imagine a blackout affecting most of the country that lasted three weeks, you know? Okay, and first couple of days, we'd all, you know, grab the flashlights and the candles. The stores would run out of food in probably three or four days. It wouldn't take very long before even deliveries of food and fuel to stop because the the trucks wouldn't be able to buy diesel fuel, especially if you disable the banking system. If, you, if your credit card doesn't work, your ATM doesn't work, how does a truck driver get that food from California to the East Coast? So you can see how these different infrastructure threats could overlap and, and exacerbate each other. So after 10 days, you know, there's no food, People are roaming the streets looking for something to loot, and there's really nothing left. It's it's really they a genuine yeah, kind of a Cormac McCarthy um, right. post, you know, apocalyptic scene. He really, in a couple of weeks, things could get unimaginably horrible. So I have a so, question for you, having yeah. not read your piece yet, um, but I you know read a little bit about this topic pretty frequently because anybody who studies thermonuclear weapons is deeply concerned about the prospect of electromagnetic pulses and what they do to civilian infrastructure. But we've been hearing a little bit about the extent to which private companies have really uh, been hardening their systems, uh, creating redundancies, and that the real threat is not necessarily to uh, the banking system, which is private enterprise, but civilian infrastructure that is public sector, uh, water, light, power, that sort of thing. Um, how, how well-founded is that assumption? Well, I don't I wouldn't be so confident in the private in infrastructure either. I do think there the problems I'm talking about are not new problems. They're not things that people are unaware of. There there is entire robust in, industry in in cybersecurity, but don't underestimate how much all these systems depend on each other. Like you may have a very very robust system to protect your uh, your data and and you know flow you know money flows in a financial institution, but imagine if all the email went down for a week. <laughs> you know, I mean, could any of us really do our job? I mean, even something as simple as email would be the loss of it would be crippling for uh, for a lot of businesses. And so the uh, the line between what's going on in our public infrastructure or private infrastructure is probably a lot fuzzier that, than we think. So, um, you know, you talk about, say, the water system. Typically in blackouts, you know, the water treatment plants, they have backup diesel generators. They can run for a long time. But what happens when the deliveries of diesel fuel run out? What happens when the diesel generator powering your local hospital or your local police station, when those run dry and there's no longer uh, deliveries of, of diesel fuel coming to keep them running. You know, what happens when your local prison, <laughs> you know, is has been in a blackout for 10 days and is out of food? Do they just leave 
prisoners in their cells to starve? Do they open the, you know, do they open the gates? I mean, we don't know. This is just uncharted territory. But the people who take this stuff seriously definitely are concerned that we're not prepared enough. And so one thing that's good that's come out of the pandemic is much more awareness that our whole focus on these super lean, just-in-time supply chains is misguided. We need to uh, we need to accept a little more slackness in the system, a little less efficiency, and a little more redundancy in order to have that resiliency that we need. Um, I mean, you mentioned in the piece these um, these moments over the last 10 years uh, where <clears throat> we've been exposed or the world has been exposed, particularly in the United States, to what can happen if a if a hacker succeeds, um, even experimentally. I mean, the biggest, most uh, flashiest one was the North Korean hack of Sony, um, which just basically exposed all of Sony's emails and then destroyed the career of Amy Pascal because she said something insulting about Angelina Jolie. No, no, that stuff. was Scott. Ru that was actually oh, oh, that was was that that Scott was Rudin? That, that was mega producer Scott Rudin. Okay, but Amy Pascal. Her, uh, She's, yeah. She said something about salaries. Uh, no, about Barack Obama. There was a discussion about they oh, were right. going to meet. They were going to meet uh, Obama, and <laughs> she or somebody said, "Well, make sure you tell him how many movies we do about you know the black experience yeah, or right. you know yeah. like Django yeah. Unchained or something." There was, yeah. a, but but the key thing there, John, is all they revealed was information. You right. know, they didn't. They didn't blow up their plumbing system right. at the studio yeah. or something. But so that was one. That was the flashiest. But then you mentioned like a wait. I'm trying to remember a dam or an electrical yeah. in well, Rye, New York, which yes. is in Westchester. Right. So um, there's these there's these systems called there's something called SCADA, which um, which is a, um, a a a system that. There are many different varieties of basically these are remote control systems for industrial infrastructure. They um, they acquire data and then they send um, commands. So you you know it might measure the pressure in a pipe or a tank, turn on and off pumps and valves, and these systems are always if they fail they can fail dramatically because they're kind of centralized you know you could see an entire refinery or something starting to have problems or an entire pipeline. Now, often a lot of the nodes on those systems are connected over the internet rather than being hardwired. So let's say if you have a pipeline and there's a, a compressor station in, at mile 350, that that's connected to the internet over a, a basically a cell phone loop so uh, connection. So if someone were able to penetrate that somehow, if someone got into that system, and they could turn off that compressor, they could disable that pipeline. I'm being kind of simplistic about how this yeah. would all work. They are well defended, but they can be hacked. The famous uh, um, Israeli hack of the uh, Iranian um, nuclear program was with the Stuxnet worm. That was an infiltration of a SCADA system. There have been 
dozens and dozens of small incidents involving SCADA systems, whether they're internal breakdowns or outside hacks. It's sometimes not totally clear, but they've affected everything from nuclear power plants to Chrysler auto plants. And there was one weird case where they determined that they thought Iranian hackers had gotten into this little tiny dam, but it has a small SCADA uh, uh, system to control some gates and stuff. The hackers didn't do anything. They were probably just poking around, experimenting. Perhaps they didn't even know what system they were in, but these systems are always being probed. They are always vulnerable. And as they run more and more of the world around us, you know, even minor incursions could be uh, pretty, pretty scary and pretty devastating. So, but that's the thing is the cyber battlefield is, 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 is barely governed by deterrence. It is to a certain degree, but it's always hot. It's always live. There's always a probing of in mutual defenses. Um, but there is deterrence insofar as we have the capacity to do the exact same thing to Russia. Uh, and I remember reading a New York Times article, I think two or three years ago, about how we had prepositioned assets in the cyber domain to, to turn off civilian infrastructure in Russia as a means of deterring their efforts to do the same to us. Um, do we believe that deterrence uh, works? in the cyber realm. I mean, there is a certain apprehension I have uh, given the extent to which we've seen Russia just throw meat at the grinder. They don't seem to have that kind of concern for human life as we do in the West. Um, but there's a risk to the integrity of the regime if all the lights go off, right? Yeah, the the deterrence is is murkier in this field. First, it's not always that easy to figure out who your enemy is, you know, where where an attack is coming from. There's a lot of freelance groups uh, that that are involved in a lot of these these attacks that aren't clearly associated with any government. So so that's one. It's not, you know, you can tell where a missile comes from, but you can't always tell where a suitcase bomb comes from. <laughs> so uh, so there's it's a little bit like that. And then we could tell them that we have the ability to attack their infrastructure, but you know they may not believe that in the same way they believe that our submarines are ready to wipe out all of their cities if you know if they start something. I, I mean, I think ultimately what we're talking about here is, and they're they're little little to big. So we have these moments of of of, of testing or. Uh, you know, probes or very small but incredibly focused attacks. The obviously the most successful being Stuxnet because it did do immense damage, uh, set the Iranian program back years. Um, a lot of what we think about here, and you talk about like a four week blackout or something like that, is effectively kind of like Hiroshima. That is to say, it would be the it would be the um. It would be the unveiling of a weapon that had never been used before on a mass scale. And uh, the world alters irrevocably from that moment forward. Um, because you are effectively saying that there is no, you're doing something for which there is no ultimate defense. That you, you point out that we need to slacken the just-in-time supply lines because we need to, we need to, understand that uh, disruption of the supply lines is the next big front in in 21st century warfare. 
uh, right? So that that fundamentally acts not as a deterrent, but if you did somehow change the way this was done and 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 got redundancy, more redundancy into the system instead of instead of incredibly stark efficiency, that's one way to prevent it. But I my my main thought here is that uh, as we discuss this, we are we are talking about something that seems inevitable somewhere at some point, and that will change the entire way that societies are organized. I'm not sure how. I mean, in the ultimate science fictional terms, you know, not to get really lunatic, but, you know, Dune postulates that computerization is so dangerous that it has to be eliminated entirely in the future uh, and individual people are somehow genetically engineered to be computers in their own heads to do all this calculation that you need. And that's it because it's too dangerous. You can't control these machines and other people can get control of your machines and all of that. Like that is something that was seen in 1965 by Frank Herbert as he thought about how the world would be constituted in this 9,000 years from now universe that he was creating. And, uh, you know, it was only 20 years ago that after this incredible blackout in New York, the last big blackout in New York, maybe it wasn't the 2003 one. Anyway, that, that, um, that they created an entirely new uh, electrical grid system in, in major cities where they decentralized the electrical grid. So it made sure that if, you know, one neighborhood went out, it didn't take the entire Eastern seaboard down. Um, but it took a major blackout and the development of some technology to make this possible for that to no longer, for they, for an innovation to take place that would prevent that kind of event. Yeah. So far, and so far. Right. Yeah. But I mean, uh, but in some sense, then we have been blessed a little bit with some of this hacking because it has exposed people are learning stuff about how porous uh, the security systems are uh, in our computer systems. And of course it then dovetails, it then comes, gets to war with us where, you know, what they would want us to do is change our passwords every five minutes. Right. But we, we can't do that. Like, you know, it's like there's security that will end up ending having, having to do that right now. Nobody would ever willingly surrender to until there is an existential threat and that they're more afraid of the threat than they are of the inconvenience. Well, well, the good news is that, you know, there are a lot of people working on this and getting better and major hacks you know, all, you know, will often lead to big improvements, but, you know, but it's still happening. One of the, one of the hacks that I talked about in uh, the piece just last year, this mysterious, uh, we think it's a, a, a Russian group called Dark Side. They basically do ransomware attacks where they, they get into your system uh, and then they lock up your data. They encrypt your data that you really need. And then they demand a big ransom to get it back. They attacked something called the Colonial Pipeline. It's the biggest pipeline carrying refined uh, petroleum products like gasoline and jet fuel from the Texas refineries to the East Coast. The, they didn't attack the pipeline at all. They weren't even trying to hurt the pipeline. They just wanted money from the company. And yet the company had to shut down that pipeline for about a week. And that pipeline delivers 
about 45% of gasoline and jet fuel to the East Coast. If that that had lasted, that alone would have been a real crisis. So it's it's a it's a real lesson. And here, what the reason I mentioned it is, even with all this work that companies have been doing on improving their security, just in um, in 2020 or 2021, you know, these major attacks are still are still successful. In fact, in some ways more successful than the than the hackers probably intended if if infrastructure disruption is our metric. You know, I'm just you know, bringing it, this around full circle because I, uh, oh, Abe, go ahead, sorry. I just want to say, but it occurs to me that there's a, a, a new sort of uh, front in this potential war has developed only recently in the past few years, which is in cryptocurrency, right? Um, digital currency, which is actually seen by people as a sort of impregn impregnable um, uh, sort of shelter for for you know for that that can't be touched when things go wrong in a sense you know that's sort of out of the system, but but couldn't a cyber attack just wipe out tons and tons of wealth in in in, in crypto as well? When you get in the zone of the blockchain, yeah, Dave, you're like yeah. I have to say I might be the tech columnist, but it's over my head. I've been trying to wrap my mind around it for years. Uh, theoretically, blockchain technology in general offers layers and layers of defense against this kind of thing. But, you know, is it is it is it hackable on some level? You know, at the point where it is, it'll probably turn out to be something simple and dumb, like somebody wrote down a password and, you know, and their wallet got stolen or something like that. That happened, right? Somebody, some guy lost a billion dollars in blockchain because he forgot his password. He fast, forgot his password. Yeah. That's, yeah. So you talk about the cost of too much security, <laughs> right. right? A single unchangeable password. That's a good example of a system that's super secure and yet un, um, and yet you know, carries its own risks because uh, it's it it is so, um, you know, in a way, such robust protection, even from the owner. Right. Um, just to bring this full circle in the crushing morosity fashion. You begin your piece with the idea that people are happily on the highway driving their Teslas and something takes over the controls of their cars and smashes their cars into other cars and then you have a you have cars all over the country causing gigantic traffic accidents because there is some weird centralized way that Tesla can kind of control you know one of those weird things about Big Brother one way in which uh, he's like Big Brother uh, uh, Musk is that um, he can kind of take over control of your car and slow it down and speed it up well, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that <laughs> that Musk personally. No, I know <laughs> can do that. But but here's what's changing, and here's why I think cyber war is, is and and cyber attacks are a growing problem. Things that used to be separate are now networked. Right? It used to be to turn on your car, you needed your own key that was almost unique. Now all the not just Tesla's, many many cars have all kinds of software updates that happen over there automatically. They talk to your cell phone. They've got you know you've got forty or fifty different computer networks in your car, each of which is theoretically hackable. And in theory, and again, I'm not saying Teslas are especially vulnerable to this. Uh, it is, after all, as much of a software company as it is a car company. But anytime you have um, 
networks of software, if someone is able to get in there and corrupt it, they could, in theory, send some kind of instruction that would screw up the system for all these cars at the same time in such a way that, you know, when you turn on your autopilot, it recognizes an oncoming car as a as a, a lane that's safe to drive in or, or some other yeah. error is introduced, sort of the way the Stuxnet virus introduced an arrow, you know, uh, into those centrifuge error, into those centrifuges that made them somehow, you know, run too fast and, and destroy themselves. So it's and it's. The new thing is you don't have to attack each target one at a time. You could attack entire networks of targets and thereby, you know, it's a uh, – we talk about everything scaling in the tech world. Well, cyber attacks also scale. Okay, so I'm now tasking our audience. You've heard all this. You'll read Jim's piece next week. Uh, I want those novels. I want to see what novels you are going to produce uh, – two years from now coming out that we can say we're sourced to this podcast where that begin with a car thinking <laughs> that a car in front of it is just an, an empty lane when they turn on the autopilot and then there's a massive traffic pileup and, and an intrepid journalist, James P. Regs is set to the task of solving the problem of this new cyber attack so that is my that i that is my mission to our listeners we've given you gold here let's see what you can do with it jim eggs thank you so much everybody uh read jim's piece in the current issue about uh the west german folly uh, on energy and look forward next week to jim's piece on on the coming uh cyber wars uh we are uh getting on planes today to go to palm beach for our big live shindig if you go to commentary.org slash live podcast you still probably have a couple hours left uh to sign up if you're around and you still want to do it uh, otherwise um we uh we will we will be preparing we'll be doing a show tomorrow uh for wednesday and then wednesday afternoon we will be taping the live podcast that will be heard on thursday that's me abe christine and for abe and Noah and the uh, and Noah and for now for Noah Abe and the absent Christine I'm John Podhoritz keep the candle burning